Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, everyone. Welcome. My name is Andy Neal, and you're listening to The Hiker Podcast. Greetings, everyone. Welcome. My name is Andy Neal, and you're listening to the podcast. You guys know The Hiker Behind the Trekking Pole, the podcast that asks the why questions of hiking, the podcast that asks hikers and outdoors persons, how has the outdoors changed them, and how are they changing the world around them? That's right. You're listening to the hiker podcast it has been a hot minute i know there's been a lot that's happened but it's all good because we're back back again the hiker podcast is back tell a friend guess who's back guess who's back guess okay you guys get it anyways um the hiker podcast is back and we are uh, here with some old sponsors some new sponsors and um a bunch of great episodes coming up Thank you all for your patience. It's been on again, off again, all fall. <laughs> I'm so sorry, y'all. I'm so sorry. Uh, but I want to let you all know about our sponsors. Uh, you all know Canock Outdoors. That's Canock, not Cnock, not Knock. It's Canock, C-N-O-C, Canock, makers of the carbon fiber cork trekking poles, the poles that I switched to after I broke my high-end trekking poles um, by a very well-known trekking pole company. Um, and I've tried to break, but I can't. They're just that good. Um, they're worth every penny. Um, I love Canuck Outdoors, makers of the carbon fiber cork trekking poles. How many times can I say carbon fiber cork trekking poles? They're a B Corp. They are just amazing. And they're also makers of all your water storage needs. Um, yeah, check them out. Link in the description of this episode. But I'm also very excited to announce our new sponsor to the show. Um, I've been an ambassador for this company for a while, Gregory Mountain Products. You all probably know them online as Gregory Packs, makers of the first line of plus-size packs. Amazing company. I've done a lot of work with them, not only online, but in person, and and got got to see their headquarters in Salt Lake, and such an amazing company. I'm so excited to have them on board supporting the Hiker Podcast, and I've had already already so many of the Gregory Pack ambassadors have three on so far and we'll have lots more on the show in the future Um, but I I'm super excited for this week's episode um, which was recorded back in October I apologize it happens Uh, Sarah Red Laird is the founder and executive director of B-Girl organization a grassroots nonprofit centered on bee habit conservation through research sorry my my, my glasses were fogged up there. Research, regeneration, and education. Uh, she's a graduate of the University of Montana's College of Forestry and Conservation and the Davidson Honors College with a degree in resource conservation. She is local here to Southern Oregon. She runs an amazing organization that educates people on the importance of not only um, pollinators and bees, but just how we preserve the outdoors. Um, my children have been to her presentations at their school um, She's an avid outdoors person, um, a conservationist, 
just d- doing amazing work here in Southern Oregon and around the country and around the world. Uh, I do have to warn you, on the episode I talk about, this is our first ever video episode. We did record the episode with video, but for some reason, this file and the video file got corrupted. This audio file you're about to listen to got the audio file saved, and that was one of the reasons why the podcast was delayed. There was a bunch of others, but couldn't couldn't um, retrieve the, uh, the uh, what you call it, <laughs> the video. So we'll talk about it. That's something that is down the pike here soon and uh with with sponsors like gregory on board and and knock outdoors that's something that can happen very soon hopefully so just wanted to warn you all about that so without any further ado my conversation with sarah red laird i am here with the b-girl herself sarah red laird how are you doing today sarah i'm good thank you so much for coming on the hiker podcast and coming on show we want to have you on for such a long time and i'm Excited to have you here in person. Most of our, this podcast started during the pandemic, so most of our interviews have been Zoom, so this has been really great to have you here, not only in person, I love having Ashland Outdoors persons here, um, but also our first video episode, so thanks for coming on. So just starting out, tell us who you are, where you come from, if you were to be, you know, trail running out up Mount Ashland and you run into somebody and you're talking to them, what would you tell them? Oh, gosh. Uh... I was training running up in Mount Ashland. I would just probably tell them hi and keep running. <laughs> uh, but I, um, I was actually born here in Ashland. Nice. And I, my dad moved to Southeast Alaska uh, when I was fairly young. Like uh, he started work up there when I was about six months old, and then he moved full time when I was four. And he was a logger and worked in the mills up there. And then when I got older, he was a hunting and fishing guide. And so I kind of split time between my mom here and my dad and my stepmom up in Alaska. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and they uh, my dad obviously is a very um, enthusiastic, avid outdoors person. And my mom as well. She was one of the first women fire wildland firefighters on the West Coast back in the early 70s. (laughs) And so not only did I spend a lot of time with my dad trapping in, in the outdoors and doing all the things that we did and we lived in a homesteader cabin so oh. we basically lived in a wooden tent with no plumbing or electricity or anything so I've always just been really comfortable outside maybe even more comfortable outside than inside because of that experience oh. and then growing up with my mom I um you know like Girls and moms and teenage girls don't get along all the time, but the outdoors was where we always could connect and get along starting when I was little all the way up through now. I mean, we get along great now, but when I was middle school, high school, like that was the the place that we could really go outside and get along. And so for me, the outdoors isn't only a place of solitude and connection with myself and with my surroundings, but it's the place that I feel really comfortable and really connected to the people that I'm with and really at ease. So, so I'm, I'm reading your bio here and I'm like, I had no idea. Like I knew you were, yeah, I know you were the B girl. You were yeah. you're, you're locally very well known. You have a, a huge following on Instagram. Uh, I'm just going to read your bio here because I was okay. just like, oh my gosh, like, this is crazy. <laughs> uh, you're the founder and executive director of B girl organization, a grassroots nonprofit centered on bee habitat conservation through research, regeneration, education. You are a graduate of the University of Montana's College of Forestry and Conservation and the Davidson Honors College with a degree in resource conservation focused in community collaboration and environmental policy. Uh, you serve as the Bees and Kids Program Director for the uh, American Beekeeping Federation. Um, it, it goes on and on. And you have this, you know, 
this huge background in the outdoors. You've been a guide, you're backpacking, all, all these things you do. At what point, and you, you grew up in Alaska, you were born in Ashland, the outdoors is around you, but at what point were you like, I want this to be what I do? Don't want to go work in an office, don't want to you know, do the, the normal nine to five thing, you know, or white picket fencing. Uh, this is my life, this is my passion, this is what I want to do. What was the catalyst for that? I think it was when I was up in Alaska. Yeah, that's a great question. So let me like reel it back a few thousand lifetimes. <laughs> but I, I, oh, so that's what it was. I went up to uh, visit my dad. I was actually working here um, at the Varsity Theater and then at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Mm-hmm. And then I just took three weeks off to go. I needed a break. I was really overwhelmed. I had been in school and working two jobs and I also worked at Ashen Street Cinema when that was here and so I was working like three jobs essentially and going to school full-time and I totally burnt out and I needed some time and some space and so I took three weeks off which meant I kind of had to quit my jobs but then they were like well it'll if it's still here for you it'll still be here for me when you get back in three weeks and so I was like okay well so I just um Went up to Alaska for three weeks to go just have some downtime and spend time with my dad and and be outside. And then I got a job working for a company that did helicopter tours for cruise ship passengers. And so I ended up staying for the rest of the cruise ship season for the next few months. And then from just working in that industry, the cruise industry down on the docks in Ketchikan, I met all of these guides that were kayak guides and hiking guides and I was like wait that's a job you can just go outside and take people outside and get paid for it and you're all so cool and I want to spend all my time with you people because you're my people Mm -hmm. and so the next year when I came up I worked as a I worked for a guiding company and then um, they were all in college studying leading people in the outdoors and I was like oh well that's what I want to do then that's what I had been actually a pre-psych major and um, I'm still a relentless nerd but uh, I I just felt really I just didn't want to I didn't I wasn't super um, devoted to the track that I was on uh, in pre-psych and so yeah I just made that shift and I ended up going back to I looked at a lot of outdoor colleges offering outdoor uh, programs and Central Oregon Community College had a rad program that uh, I uh, chatted with the uh, the leader of the program, got along really well with him, so I applied and I got in, got scholarships and grants and all the things, and yeah, so I ended up getting a degree in outdoor recreation leadership, and um, I loved school, I loved Bend, I loved uh, my life there, um, and then uh, but I ended up getting an internship with a guiding company back up in Alaska. So mm-hmm. I went back up there and then um, ended up staying there for a few more years than I thought I would because I met someone and fell in love and wanted to stay. And uh, and then, um, yeah, and then there was another transition in my career from guiding and search and rescue and really being super focused on kind of that part of the outdoors I got this super part-time job over one winter being an outreach and education coordinator for a watershed council and I got to learn about the wild world of conservation and ecology and biology and 
I loved it. I loved being able to teach other people about the outdoors, but in the classroom or in a community mm -hmm. meeting, or I ran a stormwater program for the community that was rad that I really loved. And so I really started falling in love with more of the conservation side of the outdoor world and the science side of the outdoor world. And I never had it never even was a concept in my mind, even in my late 20s, that a woman could be a biologist because growing up, all of my dad's buddies that were fish and wildlife service biologists or Alaska fish and game biologists were men. <clears throat> never in my life had I ever seen a female scientist. Mm -hmm. And so I had no concept that I could even work in conservation growing up. And so I went to uh, a watershed conference called river rally and there's 300 people there and the majority of people there were women working in conservation conservation biology and ecology and i was just like what i can do this too so that inspired me to shift again and go back to school and get a bachelor's degree in um in uh, uh resource conservation and there i also fell in love with policy and yeah how's it been as a woman in the outdoor industry how, how have you been received? Because, I mean, the outdoor industry has normally been very, very male-dominated. Yeah. What's been your reception getting into this industry and having – you have such a huge following and a loud voice now. Um, what's that been like? Oh, 100%. Like, very, very male-dominated. Uh, and I'm – this was – I worked in the outdoor industry as a guide – like 15 to 20 years ago at this point. Um, these were in my early 20s, early mid 20s is when I was guiding and working like really solidly in the outdoor industry and working in outdoor shops. And um, I'm 43 now, so it was a while ago. <laughs> um, but that was very uh, front and center. I was not treated the same as the male guides. Mm -hmm. I was not given the same opportunities of the male guides. The lead guide up in Alaska um, did not treat me equally. I have always been pretty mouthy and stood up for myself. And mm -hmm. so I actually went to his boss and lodged like an official complaint. And then we changed things and I was able to get hours on the schedule and got more opportunities to do cooler hikes and stuff. And so, um, yeah, and uh, and also kind of pointed out that other like the other one to two women guides as well um, didn't get very fair treatment. Um, so uh, so yeah, I definitely noticed it then. There's just a lack of representation uh, in in the outdoors back then. There wasn't a lot of women guides, and there wasn't it wasn't very well a very welcoming place to be. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because. I've I've kind of inserted myself into male-dominated spaces for my whole career, like whether it be the sciences, the beekeeping world, um, farming, <laughs> farming and ranching. Uh, there are women present, but it's a male-dominated industry or a male-dominated sector. Mm -hmm. um, education and nonprofit <clears throat> management are the only places where I'm actually like amongst a lot of other women leaders. Um, so, um, yeah, it's been tough. Um, it was really interesting. I actually had the super triggering experience last year when I got a split board for Christmas and the, um, 
the pieces that I got for my bindings were wrong. Like they put two of the same thing instead of all the pieces I need. And the uh, place that my partner had purchased it for me and ordered all the stuff was actually in Bend. It was the closest place he could find a really good split board setup. Mm-hmm. And so we drove to Bend and we went to an outdoor store in Bend. And I uh, put the board and the pieces up on the counter and was like, hey, um, I tried putting this together. It just was wrong. And the way I was treated, I think it was even the owner of the store, the way I was treated by him was so disrespectful. And he basically treated me like I was stupid, even though, and then like once he realized that I was right and it was the wrong pieces, Mm -hmm. he didn't even apologize for the way that he treated me. And he also treated the other women in the store, like one, like, Another woman, female employee, saw what was going on. She came up to help and to basically stand up for me, and Mm -hmm. he totally shot her down. And I was like, I was livid. I was, it took me days to calm down from that. And I almost like wrote him a letter. I almost called a few friends in Ben to find out like exactly who that person is and why they have this position of power and if this is a problem and he needs to know about it. And then I ended up not really doing or saying anything in the when all was said and done because it was pandemic times and I was exhausted. And yeah, and I also was just like, well, maybe, I mean, that just sucks that this is still just the way that it is. It just sucks that this is like 2021 and mm-hmm. this is how like women in outdoor stores are still being treated like as a customer and even as employees. So yeah, I mean, it's it's alive and well. Yeah, <laughs> even it's post a, me too. <laughs> as much as much as you like to think that it's changed, and you see a lot more women out on social media and out, out on the trail and you know solo hiking and solo climbing, it's a problem that doesn't seem to go away, which is it boggles my mind. In a place like Bend, which I spent a lot of time in Bend, you think the outdoor industry in Bend is so progressive and so this, and then they hear that you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. And there's still so much work to do. Um, how have things changed for the positive? Not only because you're, you're in this industry, you've been in this industry for, I've only been in this industry for about two years, and it's crazy for me to think it's only been two years. How has it changed for the better, though, not only for, for women, but people of color and LGBTQ and, and other others in the outdoor? Because for so long, outdoor has been very cis, het, straight, white, male. Um, you know, basically a dude you'd see in a Mountain Dew commercial. That's, right. that's really what it was <laughs> totally. for so yeah. long. What have been some maybe the positive things you've seen, knowing that we still have a long way to go? Yeah. Well, we're talking about it. You and I are sitting here having this conversation 20 years ago. There's no way. It was like if you brought up uh, uh, sexist behavior or misogyny in the outdoor industry, it was kind of like, ooh, yeah, I could see that. But then it was kind of brushed under the rug and nobody really wanted to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And... um, So yeah, I think that there's an awareness. We're talking about it. And just because we're talking about it and there's awareness, like you said, doesn't mean that there's um, the change currently that needs to be happening. But I hope that the the bow is headed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That we're, um, as an industry and uh, as different communities, we're recognizing it and talking about it. And... um, you know, now that we're talking about that, I might still just <laughs> write a strongly worded letter. <laughs> when we're done recording, let me know. I, I go to Bend like twice a month. So let me know not to, wherever it is not to go there. <laughs> I mean, it's to, the other women that were working in the shop. It was actually, well, interestingly enough, it was um, there was more women than men employees, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great shop. 
And the experience that I had with the other employees was awesome. It was just this one guy that just really got to me. Um, and I think he might be an owner, just the way that he was acting, the mm -hmm. way he was talking to people. And I was like, that sucks. That like, you know, like it comes from the top down. And so, but, but yeah, the fact that we're just even talking about it, the fact that there has been an awareness around the lack of, we're, we're addressing and talking about the fact that there's lack of POC in the, in the outdoor industries. And so I've been just, me, myself, I've been really intentional of seeking out and finding people of color. And I've always been obsessively followed women athletes in the outdoors and tried to support them in any way that I possibly could with just even like shooting the messages on social media or coming up to them at a film screening and letting them know how much I love what they do and how inspiring they are because those little comments really do work and we do need to hear those things. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, but, um, but following, finding accounts to follow on Instagram and giving all the hearts and positive comments and cheerleading from the sidelines that I possibly can. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's also a positive is social media and getting to be able to kind of look out. I mean, Southern Oregon is very white, mm -hmm, yeah. um, but and and so just knowing that there are people of colors that are people of color that are out there in the outdoors doing amazing things and you can find them on social media mm -hmm. um, and lift them up and celebrate them mm -hmm. and share what they're up to. And and so I think that that's also a positive. Yeah. Talk a little bit about social media. Um, I start. I started following you, and you had you had an uh, issue with uh, that wasn't your van, uh, your living situation, and people were, you know, supporting you. And I was like, oh my gosh! And this is before I had any, any type of following. I just got into the outdoors. Um, I hear so much, both positive and negative, from outdoorsy people regarding the outdoors. Like, oh, it's been a net negative. Now there's too many people out there. There's just you know, the trails are overrun, the people don't know what they're doing. Other people are like, oh, no, the more people get out there, the more funding we can get, the more awareness there is. Uh, you, you've been in this industry for a while. How do you, what, what's your take on how social media has changed the outdoor landscape? For example, um, head of the, PC, uh, the PCT Trail Association years ago had said that the number one thing bringing people to the PCT was Cheryl Strait's book and then the mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. Now they say it's Instagram. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. see that shift. What have you seen in that time? There is definitely more people outside and on the trails now than there were um, uh, years and years ago, for sure. Um, but I love it. I'm in the camp that I'm like, the more the better. Mm -hmm. There's plenty. It's just, it's about having either an abundance or a scarcity mentality, you know? Like, I think that there's plenty of outdoor opportunities. I think that there are the the more the merrier but of course it's there's always an opportunity for education and for bringing people along on how to be in the outdoors and so I mean social media can also be a force for good I mean what you do and how educational your podcast is and what you let people know about you know is awesome um and um I think that there could be when the pandemic first started and everybody started pouring into the onto the trails yeah. because there was nothing else to, nothing do, to do. Yep. That was overwhelming because of the amount of overflowing porta potties and <laughs> yes. pit toilets and the trash and the speakers. But I think that this is I think a lot of those folks just don't know any better. They yeah. probably weren't raised camping and hiking yeah. and so they haven't 
been taught or told. And the coolest thing happened. I um, took a big road trip in the van this summer. And anywhere that I possibly could, I would look up a trail to go on a run with Midgey, my pup. And there was actually a lot of volunteers from local outdoor nonprofits um, or trails associations and then also park service staffers that were tabling on the outside of really super busy trails in Montana and Colorado and Wyoming. And they were out there and they had a bunch of um, information on how to be in the outdoors, Mm -hmm. like not to bring your speaker, not to to clean up after your dog, even though it is outside. Mm -hmm. And because if they go, if there's everybody brings a dog and they're all going right along the trail, like that's going to add up. And then um, leave no trace, like there's leave no trace educators out there. And so it did take a while from like the onslaught that the pandemic started into the outdoors, but it was really, really cool to see that. And I'm definitely a really independent person. So I did bristle when I first saw like, why is there a table? Like, why is there, why are someone tabling in a trailhead? And then yeah. I got closer and they were so nice and so sweet and, and really just there to like stop people and educate them and make sure everybody's filling out their permits and being responsible and keeping their dogs on leashes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought that that was awesome. So I think that there are people that are, there's definitely, it is a problem for people to go out and misuse the outdoors and ruin other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. But it's just about teaching trail manners. You know, like I tell our kids that manners are being conscious of the fact that what you do impacts others. Mm -hmm. And so being really mindful around you, the impact that you're currently having on the people around you. And so that's just what it is, is like teaching trail manners. And if you don't, if you don't know, you don't know. Awesome. It's, it's been weird to see because I'm one of those people who got into the outdoors right as the pandemic was happening. <laughs> I, had, I mean, I'm a city kid. I'm from Las Vegas in Southern California. I mean, yeah. I, I used to, I used to, you know, brag about the fact that I wasn't outdoorsy. I'm mm-hmm. a, I was living in Southern Oregon. I'm a city kid. I'm, well, I'm the, the little town Medford, little town Nashville. What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I discovered like what, what I've been missing my whole life, but I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really having been now in, in the shoes where, I didn't know, and now people are looking to me for like, oh, what what is LNT? You know, leave no trace. What are these things? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, when I, I see someone on the trail and they pick up their dogs, you know, you know, poop, you know, they, they pick it up and they leave on the side of the trail. I'm like, hey, can you not do that? Because yeah. a raccoon might get into that, or you're likely just gonna forget it on the way yeah. back because you don't know where you put that. So go ahead and just pick that up now. That's what, yeah. Um, a brilliant trail hack for that that I learned from my friend Jackie is just bring an old Nalgene. So like, pick it up with a bag. That's a really good and idea. And then put it in your Nalgene. You're like old nasty Nalgene that you're never going to use for mm-hmm. anything else. And that way it doesn't stink. Like it's totally contained. And then just carabiner it onto the back of your backpack That's or really inside idea. your backpack. I'm going to do that. Yeah. It's that way you don't, because nobody wants to carry around dog's poop sitting, for 10 yeah, miles exactly. or three miles or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, there you go. I, yeah. Brilliant trail hack. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. I wish I would have thought about that because I have like a thousand Nalgene's yeah. that I don't use Everybody's anymore. got an old Nalgene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's weird to see that dichotomy because, I mean, there's times when I get on a trail and I went, I'm like, oh, there's so many people. What's going mm-hmm. on? But then I'm like, that was me once. That was, yeah. and I've gained so much benefits from the outdoors and it's now how I, I make my living. It's I get, I get to do these things. Um, and it's only a net positive. The the trails and the associations, everything have to catch up because there was this onslaught. Mm-hmm. But it, it 
the outdoors is for everyone and everybody and you know trying to keep it to yourself yeah. and have your don't you know don't tell people where you went on the trail i get that all the time why did you, why did you post the location of that trail i especially here in southern oregon people have their little spots that oh, i'm like totally yes They're public land it's public land this well, is taxpayer exactly. money is paying for this this is this is in the monument yeah. this is blm mm-hmm. land this is in the this is in crater lake national park yeah. this is in the redwoods i've gotten some very hateful messages like why would you do that i'm like um Oh, yeah. Like, it's my ridiculous. best friend is one of those people. And that's, like, one of the only things that we really butt heads on is she gets really, really, really grumpy if there's any kind of outdoor event or mm-hmm. somebody's putting something on social media about a trail or something because – and I'm like, it's not just for you, though. Yeah. Like, this is for everyone. And we want more community in the outdoors. We want more community around the outdoors. Like, for me, just safety's sake, I don't want to go splitboarding by myself in the backcountry. I mm-hmm. want friends to go with, and I don't have any friends to go with right now. And so I love to go to one of these events and go meet people that I could go splitboarding with or backcountry skiing with more. And so, I, because I, I want more community, so I want more people to become proficient in the outdoors. And then also, policy really matters, and yeah. voting matters, yeah. and voting for people that believe in our public lands and the sanctity of our public lands and our wilderness areas is important. And you're not going to care about that unless you've had a personal experience with the outdoors mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you've been able to get in flow and have connection with the outdoors, which every human has the capacity to do. And you're not going to care unless you've physically done it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the dollars come from. That's why the trail associations are able to afford to table mm-hmm. a trail. I mean, I would love to see that in Southern Oregon more yeah. the PCT and some of the monument areas. Shifting gears here a little bit. So now you work with bees. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> and that's what you're known for here in Southern Oregon and around the country. How did that happen? That was uh, another dog leg <laughs> in academia. Everything kind of shifts around like where I'm go- what I'm going to school for. Um, uh, so I was, at, well, I was at school for... Um, uh, resource conservation in Montana and I had gotten an internship working at the honeybee lab and doing fun cool weird research and along with my like 19 credits and two other internships (laughs) but uh, I graduated in 2010 during the last big recession Mm -hmm. and unlike today there was no jobs there was no jobs at all anywhere and I uh, I had been, I had gotten my, I was a super overachiever in college and basically um, one of the nonprofits that I, one of the other nonprofits that I was interning with, that was a, um, a water policy focused nonprofit, um, had kind of built a job for me coming out of school where I'd be working half in Missoula and half in Helena, the capital, and doing lobbying in the capital around water policy but there was just this also a giant, uh, if you remember the Tea Party oh, in yeah. 2010, yep. the kind of fallout after Obama was elected in 2008 that went to push back against environmental policy mm-hmm. and climate change and anything good for the outdoors. And so they were really honest and they were like, you know what, like we had like our own version of Montana Tea Party take over like our Congress and... It's just not going to be fun, and we're probably actually not going to get anything done because my whole job was around climate change and water policy. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
they're like, you can still have this job, but like being your first job <laughs> out of college, it's going to suck. And um, and we probably even won't have enough work for you to offer you more than like 10 to 20 hours a week now at this point. And then so I told the professor at the B-Lab that and he's like, oh, well, we'll see what we can do. So he was able to pull some money from here and there and created a position for me at the Honey Bee Lab working as a researcher full time. And I was like, OK, cool. Well, I'll just do this until I can get back to conservation, real conservation mm-hmm. work. And I just really loved it. And I loved the research and I loved working with the bees and working in the lab. And I loved the people that I worked with. And, and um, then it got to uh, kind of like this weird split in the road where the job available for me going forward was to work for a as a subcontractor for a large pharmaceutical slash um, chemical ag chemical company mm-hmm. doing research where they were asking the research questions and I didn't like the questions they were asking. I didn't think that they're asking the right questions to get to the solution of the problem, which is all the bees are dying. Yeah. They instead were asking the questions that they know they get the answers to that were very surface and very much to kind of say that like what was going on wasn't their fault. And so I kind of just like did a little pivot away and had come home for the winter and between research seasons here to Southern Oregon. And it just very organically started. I kind of was just that really nerdy person that couldn't stop talking about bees if I was out to dinner with friends or (laughs) out at the bars or whatever. And then somebody said, oh, have you ever taught a class about, I mean, I'm sure the community would love to hear about your research and what you did. And there's a lot of people that are wanting to become backyard beekeepers. Like, have you ever thought about doing a class here in Southern Oregon, I was like, oh, no, but sure. And so I rented out the um, the community center that now does no longer exist, that our, commi- our condemned community center. But back then you could rent it out for $15, I think, or $30 or something for the evening for like three, two or three hours. Mm-hmm. And I had some friends from high school like take tickets at the door. <laughs> and um, yeah, and that was my first class. And it was a ton of people showed up, like 40 or 50 people showed up and it was awesome. And the questions were awesome. And then there was a woman there who was a teacher and she was like, oh, will you come and talk to my first graders about bees? And I was like, sure. And then that started the kids program. And then everything just kind of rocket ship avalanche from there. And then by the time I needed to go back to work for the research season for the chemical company, I was like, I just don't think I want to do that. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. And I know that it actually pays money and, and I, I would, but, and, but I just feel like I need to stay here and I need to see this through because there's a real demand and a niche for what I can offer to the world. And so I was beginning a bee girl in 2010, 2011. Awesome. So, so for the listeners who don't know, we have a lot of people who are new to the outdoors. Let's get into nuts and bolts of it. Why are, B is important. I mean, my, my, my son's attended your, your class. Like anytime there's like a little, you know, weed up in the middle of our lawn and I'm mowing the lawn, he tells me to mow around it because yes. we need to, we need to <laughs> preserve that for the, yeah, for the pollinators. <laughs> I'm like, okay, fine, fine, fine. I'll mow around it. Um, and it, 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 why is, why is this so important? I mean, I, I, I know for obvious reasons, but for our listeners who may not know why it's important to preserve, you know, honeybees, you know, I, 
I have a, I have a slight allergy to bees, so I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a little I'm a little back off. I have to carry an EpiPen, mm-hmm. um, so they're a little scary to me. So why are they important though for the ecosystem, and how is climate change affecting their livelihood? Yeah. In short, they feed us. So honeybees pollinate one out of every three bites of food that we eat. And the food that they pollinate is the brunt of the color and flavor and nutrition. Um, Strawberries, a lot of our fruits, strawberries, cherries, um, uh, cotton. (laughs) You and I are both wearing cotton clothes today. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can thank honeybees for pollinating our cotton. Um, money is made out of cotton, <laughs> so they they make our money for us. Um, so they're really connected into so many of the things that we eat and use in our daily lives, and then um, and they're really an integral part of agriculture. That um, that um, they're a, a, a keystone species. Honeybees are a keystone species. Um, as well as an indicator species um, in American agriculture. And then we also have, so there's one species of native, or excuse me, of honeybees that are in this country, and they were imported um, for honey, actually, with uh, the original settlers that were coming in the 1600s. And however, there are 4,000 species of native bees that are here. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of liken them to honeybees are livestock and native bees are wildlife and and the the wide world of native bees is also extraordinarily fascinating and 86 percent ish probably actually more of our plants in north america have to have an uh a pollinator Mm -hmm. the rest are wind pollinated or self-pollinating but those plants need some sort of a pollinator to move pollen around the plant in order for it to be fertilized and then to grow fruit and seeds and live another day. Um, and the ma- vast majority of pollinators and hands down the most efficient, the best pollinator on the planet is a bee. They're just made to, to pollinate flowers. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we have to have, in order for nature to function, we have to have bees. And you know, like I can connect bees to anything. There's bumblebees in the tundra in Alaska that pollinate berries like kinnikinick that bears survive on in the summertime. And um, there are bees around our neck of the woods that pollinate shrubbery that make berries that migrational songbirds survive on this time of year. So they really do... um, they're connector species, they're an indicator species, they're a keystone species. They really kind of just are the work engines that keep everything going. And then as far as how climate change affects bees, it affects them in many, many, many ways. I mean, one of the just most blatant ways as far as honeybees are concerned is they're they're directly affected by the extreme weather that is caused by climate change. Mm-hmm. Like here in the West Coast, fires. Yeah. I get reports every time that there's some sort of a massive fire of um, both like very beautiful success stories and tragedies. I hear beekeepers will email me about a fundraiser they might have for tens or thousands of bees that they lost in fires, physically got burned up. Every once in a while, I'll get a really beautiful story of a... Um, a firefighter that went out and wrapped someone's bees in the like 
fire tinfoil that yeah, they have stuff, yeah. or sprayed them down with water and kept them alive through a forest fire, which is really awesome. Um, Hurricane Ian killed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of hives of bees. And there's um, some pretty massive fundraising efforts in the bee community right now to get those beekeepers back on their feet. Mm -hmm. So that's how climate change can directly affect honeybees. But then also in kind of a very high level look, it's drought, it's extreme weather, it's loss of um, uh, drought and extreme weather and heat waves that are causing floral landscapes to dry up and disappear um, or diversity in floral landscapes to dry up and disappear where something like blackberry might thrive, then our more sensitive native flowers just can't, um, there's just not enough water and they can't handle the heat. They just weren't evolved for that. And so, and there's only a certain amount of, there might be like seven species that are really into blackberry, but then there might be this one special flower and this one special bee that just can't survive the heat and just mm -hmm. can't survive the drought. So. And we were talking before we started recording about how like we went summer last week and now we're in winter. There's yeah. snow up on Mount Ashland right now. <laughs> it's cold outside. I pulled out my puffy. I, yeah. I wasn't expecting to do that until yeah. like December. So th this, this is happening like climate. Like it's, it's not debatable, mm -hmm. but um, besides this little, I call blue dot in Ashland. We li we live in a very very conservative part of Oregon. People think mm -hmm. Oregon is very, very liberal, and it is because of Portland mm -hmm. um, controls our politics. But the state, especially in the more rural parts, are are tend to be a little more more conservative. And I'm always fascinated. I love to talk to environmental educators in Southern Oregon who you know teach this stuff. How do you do such a good job? of talking about bees and climate change in a in an area where people don't really believe it may it may even be happening how do you communicate that and then you have these kids who are saying dad don't mow the lawn right there because yeah. <laughs> we need to save the bees and like oh, okay i'll do it. whatever yeah and uh, how do you do that because i'm seeing educator after educator um communicate that so effectively and i'm just like my my own daughter goes to a um a uh a magnet school out in Gold Hill, and our teachers are very, for lack of a better term, just very environmentally friendly, let's say, and in an area that you see a lot of flags you don't want to see on people's houses, mm -hmm. and yet you have all these kids who are excited about the environment. Like, what the heck? Yeah. How do you go about that in an area such as this, in a more rural area that yeah. doesn't really maybe take the environmentally environment and climate change as seriously as we would like? Yeah. One of our board members is actually a classroom teacher at um, a school in Rogue River, and he is very, he has a degree in um, environmental education from SOU, and he's very environmentally focused, and I'm just like, that's rad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good for you, and uh, what a hero. Um, I, I'm lucky because everybody loves bees. Bees aren't really a controversial topic. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves honey. Everybody loves bees. Everybody understands that bees, I mean, for the most part, people at this point, it's been so long that a lot of people haven't even heard of colony collapse disorder, which was kind of this phenomena that started in 2006, 2007, that got everybody's attention about the importance of bees. But it's been so long now, nobody even talks about or knows about colony collapse disorder anymore. They just know that the bees are important and we need to save them. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love that. I've always taught around 
positivity and love and passion. And I do not try to scare children into thinking that all the bees are dying. So they better hurry up and start acting right. Like mm-hmm. I'm there to create a love relationship between kids and bees or even adults and bees. And I get complaints from parents because they're like, why didn't you talk about pesticides? And I was like, because I don't have to, like, I don't have to scare your kids into loving bees and like growing up to be bee conservationists. I can inspire them to love bees. And that emotion is so much more, it's just so, so much more long lasting if you are like fired up because you don't like something or you're scared or there's fear, it's such a flash emotion. Like it's big and it's a flash and you might like, but it's, you can burn out literally figuratively really easily. And so I just try and kindle it with love and, um, and fascination. And so, yeah, I just, I love bees so much and they have so many cool, there's so many cool, weird, awesome, fun facts and kids love fun facts and they love to know things and they love even like the macabre weird part of bees and so I just kind of like I get them really excited about cool facts that they can tell their friends or they can tell their parents or they can just know and then they feel like they know things that are easy to remember and really cool and then that really kind of fosters this fascination and curiosity I think because um, I run into folks often I just I love hearing the story that you shared about Um, that your son was in one of our programs because I hear that all the time around Ashland which is so cool and like the other day there was um, the woman that sang at our fundraiser she said oh my kid went to your kids and bees program like 10 years ago and he still talks about bees all the time and so I love that because it shows that really 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 um, cultivating an interest and a curiosity is what's going to raise our little bee conservationists in the future. So I guess that's how I do it is just I get people as excited as I am through sharing just how amazing and fascinating this um, species is. And it's, it's funny, like with my daughter, like we go hiking and you put on repellent. She's like, no, dad, we need to get some citronella essential oil. I'm like, what? She's like, no, it's non-toxic and it'll keep them away. And if, the, if bugs or anything get around you, it's not going to hurt them. I'm like, I guess we're yes. going to order some citronella essential oil. And it's better for you, <laughs> <Yes>. too. <laughs> That's bringing all the chemicals on yeah. you. Um, what is, though, like, I think, I think I know the answer to this is, but what is the consequence of continued climate change and continued loss of bee habitats and, and, and these colonies? What is the consequence for the environment and for, and for humans if something doesn't happen if we don't begin to take this seriously, not only on a personal level with families and in your backyard when you mow your lawn, but on a governmental and policy level. Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing that just popped into my head was I thought um, what's on the table right now is loss of pleasure and enjoyment in the outdoors. That's where we're heading, and that's what makes me really, really, really sad and makes me want to keep doing what I'm doing in any way I can to help fight climate change is that I spent six weeks living in my van on the road and living on farms and ranches Mm -hmm. in the Great Basin and in the Mountain West and in the Pacific Northwest last summer, and it was really not a pleasure. Um, It was hot. It was super hot. The loss of beauty in these places that I uh, basically came into my own in my 20s in the outdoors in Montana, 
I went back to the um, Greater Yellowstone ecosystem for the first time in many, many, many years. And I was beside myself with the lack of floral diversity that was out there that I remember seeing when I lived there as a student. Mm -hmm. And I, in my head, had like envisioned just like such a comfortable summer living in the van, 82 degrees, flowers everywhere. I mean, I even just six, seven years ago, I was teaching summer camps in Montana outside of for um, the Farmers Union outside of uh, Great Falls. And it was like so comfortable, so beautiful, such a pleasure to be out there. So nice to get away from the wildfire smoke here in Southern Oregon and get out there to just like the best temperature and the most beautiful flowers and afternoon rainstorms, you know, and the summer was brutal. It was 96 degrees. It was 110 inside the van because I didn't have an air conditioning unit because I didn't think I would need one because it's Montana and um, South Dakota, North Dakota. And um, yeah, I I just I'm what's at risk is like what we're talking about, like and why we like why you and I exist in the world is to thrive in the outdoors and share that with people and and bring more people along with us into the outdoors so they can also thrive as human beings from the pleasures that we can get from being in a flow state in the outdoors Mm -hmm. and if climate change keeps going the way that it's going we're not going to have that anymore like that's not going to be accessible to anyone we're going to have to go to like mountaintops of Colorado or Alaska or something in order to have comfortable experiences and that's no longer going to be accessible to everyone because yeah I just it was like remarkably less flowers shockingly less floral diversity shockingly less beauty everything was so crispy so hot so uncomfortable um there was a massive flood in Yellowstone this year that completely changed the river I had a really hard time even finding anywhere to swim because of like how much the river has changed Mm -hmm. um that felt safe. Like it was either like really, really fast or really, really shallow or just like, just very uncomfortable. Um, yeah. So I think that that's what we're at risk of. And, and then on top of that, we're at risk of losing, you know, like we're just now the country the North America is starting to do some really, really cool coming together around finally getting some baseline data as far as bees so we can say definitively what's happening because right now nobody really knows there hasn't really been um a countrywide uh melatology study since like the age of discovery in the 1800s really like um and so there are universities and governmental agencies that are like as we speak I'm on the and uh, part of the group that's forming like how can we as a country all get together to start taking baseline data for native bee species to be able to see how climate change and other factors like agriculture are affecting them as we move forward but it's not going to be good (laughs) I don't think that I think we're going to find cool, weird, neat bee species that we didn't think were places that they are. But I think what we're going to find is that we are, uh, I mean, we know that we've, we have a, um, we have a bumblebee here in Southern Oregon in Ashland that's endemic to Mount Ashland called Franklin's bumblebee, Bumbus franklinii. And she's gone. Like oh, wow. she's, she's not coming back. And it happened in 15 years. Gosh. <laughs> And it's so weird for me to think because I moved here from Las Vegas in 2007. 
Las Vegas every year, you know, you get 110, 120, normal for the middle of the desert. This summer, I'm looking, you know, I, I came here in 2007. It was, you know, in the in the summer, you'd have a couple of 100 degree days. It wasn't too bad. You know, this last year, I'm looking at the temperatures in, in August. It's hotter here than in my home in Las Vegas. And it's like, yeah. when that, that was unheard of 15 years ago. Yeah. Never happened. You'd have a few couple hundred. It always happened when I visited here. I'd come visit like, oh, you brought the heat with you. Mm-hmm. It always happened that weekend. And people just don't realize how that is changing. I talked to PCT hikers the PCT days this year, and they're like, I see all these videos of people going out and hiking from 2015, 2016. It's beautiful. And it's like, I've had, there's all these fire closures. And they've had to skip and skip and the, the smoke is debilitating. And it's like, you can't do a complete through hike anymore. And I know for myself, I didn't do any hiking in the, in, in the Rogue Valley region in August of September. I went up to the gorge or I went over to the coast because I just couldn't do it. It was too mm-hmm. hot and too smoky. Yeah. And it, it, it's right in front of us, but I think unless if you're in the outdoors, you can see it. And if you, I'm wondering if, if people aren't really gonna take it seriously until it actually affects them. Yeah, and I wonder then even if they'll like make the connection mm-hmm. that <laughs> yeah, like wow, like that just like I mean, my uh, my boyfriend. His name's Hal, Hal Kerner, and he's uh, an ultra runner and was a professional ultra runner for a long time with the North Face. And he co-directs and organizes quite a few races around town. And then we um, help out at an aid station down at Western States um, Ultra Marathon, which is like kind of this iconic. It was the first official ultra marathon. So 100 miles, Mm -hmm. runners run 100 miles from South Lake Tahoe to um, Auburn, California. And... This year, the weather was a bit more cooperative, but last year, oh my lord, like people were dropping like flies because yeah. it was so hot. They just couldn't do it. I was supposed to hike the Tahoe Rim Trail that summer and just couldn't do it. Oh my gosh. It and was... then this year has the last race that he ran and organized. I think he had something like 40% of people dropped out because it was so hot. They couldn't do it. They just were, it was, it was inhumane to, um, and... So, but then, but I don't know. I don't see the trail running or the ultra running community talking about climate change. Mm -hmm. I don't see it on their Instagrams. I don't hear it on their podcasts. I don't see anybody like really, really advocating for um, climate resilience or talking about climate change. And so I'm like, wow, that's really interesting because because of climate change, we are having in humanly inhospitable heat waves mm-hmm. in what was formerly a really uh, calm climate. And that is very much affecting the bottom line of this race and the running community um, and the health of the running community. Yeah. But why isn't anybody more, why isn't everybody out in the streets? Yeah, <laughs> like why, why isn't everybody right? Like, like why isn't there more like even climate initiatives at these big ultra races? And yeah, I, I mean, there are like some outdoor, like um, Protect Our Winters mm-hmm. is a really amazing nonprofit that's really connected into the, um, the outdoor space and talking about climate change. And they basically are like advocating for um, solutions to climate change because they want snow be, and it's mostly skiers and snowboarders. Yeah. And so I would love to have like, 
like, can we have a nonprofit that does protect our summers that like, we don't want to live on a hellscape. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to live and out and recreate in an inhospitable and humane hellscape. <laughs> and that would be amazing. Whether it's you know, your family day hikers and your through hikers and your ultra runners and your climbers, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that in, you're, you're looking for, especially in the Pacific Northwest, it's wet, it's rainy, and you're looking forward to the summer. The summer gets here, and you get like three good weeks, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, hell-like temperatures. You're like, and then you have to drive, which you don't, you know. I love the Southern Oregon because I live near the monument. I live near all the stuff. I mm-hmm. live I, I live five minutes from Table Rock. I can just climb up there whenever I want. You know, I don't want to have to drive two and a half hours to the Redwood Forest. I love the Redwood Forest, but mm-hmm. why just to enjoy the outdoors? I need to, you know, waste that carbon to get out in temperatures that are below 80 degrees. Yeah. And it's something that I think the outdoor community really needs to kind of pay attention to. It it really hit me this summer at PCT Days, talking to hiker after hiker, and they're just so disheartened. And and even Mm -hmm. at PCT Days, at the Gorge, you know, last two times I went, it was cloudy and wet, and this time it was just blazing hot. And, Mm -hmm. like, it's never that hot at PCT Days. What, 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 can we do so what can hikers day hikers through hikers climbers do to begin to make an impact and not only encourage you know our governments to make policy that will help stem the tide i mean we maybe maybe it's too late maybe it's not maybe we can make it not as bad but also you know the outdoor industry these companies it's a multi-billion dollar industry mm-hmm. you know you have the founder of patagonia you know you know he's he's going to put all his time and money into that. And that's mm-hmm. that's one company. Patagonia mm-hmm. is an amazing company, but you mm-hmm. have so many other companies whose job it is to make money. They have these mm-hmm. resources. What can the outdoor industry and outdoors people do to really, what can we do to make this change? Not only just for climate change, but to protect our food with pollinators. You know, we don't have pollinators. We have, and we already have a hard enough time getting food right now with, you know, supply chain issues and stuff. What can we do? So many things. (laughs) I would love to see more of an integration of the outdoor industry and the regenerative and sustainable agriculture movements. I think that there's so much interesting synchronicity there because agriculture is in the out of doors (laughs) and we need a healthy clean outdoor space in order to recreate in and we can't have that if we have conventional chemical agriculture that is taking a toll on our earth through the direct chemicals that they're pouring onto our landscapes and then also the massive petroleum that it takes to Mm -hmm. make fertilizers Mm -hmm. and to make um, a a lot of uh, these um, monocropped crops. I went out to look at a, um, to go help this summer on a project that's um, a massive chemical spill from a ethanol, um, it's a, it's a corn, it's basically a, a receiving plant for pre-treated, unplanted corn. So pre-treated with a um, petroleum-based systemic 
pesticide um, that can, so this corn can be planted and it's so incredibly toxic, no weed or no insect is going to get close to it. Mm -hmm. And then we um, basically put that into our gas tanks in the form of ethanol or it gets fed to cows and um, CAFOs. Mm -hmm. And um, so all of this pre-treated, unplanted because of the surplus in this country and overproducing, overproduction of corn goes to these different plants. And then this one plant basically got nailed because a friend of mine, Dr. Judy Wu Smart, has a research apiary near there. And as soon as they started receiving all of this surplus corn and then not processing it correctly and because it was so toxic, they can't they can't get the the chemicals off of the corn, they haven't been able to figure out a way to detoxify this product to be able to, their whole thing was going to be biochar, but they can't even cook the chemicals off of it. And they tried and then they sent it off to a farm. And then the, the amount of chemicals that was in the biochar was through the roots. Like it was like violated every single EPA law out there. Mm -hmm. And so basically there's just corn that they're receiving and they're getting paid to receive. That's just getting like stocked up in football field sized piles. And then it's leaching out into the whole entire community and Mm -hmm. environment. And it poisoned all of her bees to death year after year after year. And she finally pinpointed what was going on, but that comes back on all of us. That comes back on driving cars and eating cheap fast food meat. And, um, and then it's also like you can't even so there's no recreation to be had about around there and there's rivers and there's some beautiful landscapes but one of the researchers was taking her dog along with her to collect data and her dog got really sick and almost died just from the amount of toxins that he sucked up through his paws mm-hmm. so how how what a bummer is that that we can't even take our dogs on a walk with us when we're out doing like biological research so i kind of like went a little sideways there but like I'm basically that the point is is if anybody who drives a car is responsible for this chemical spill in Mead Nebraska um, which is where it is and and so I think that we just need to take more responsibility as individuals to make choices on our own lives about what can we do to utilize public transportation? What can we do to utilize, utilize moving towards electric cars, even though that's not the best solution? The best solution is more public transportation, more bike riding, more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also our food system. I think if we can, we can really, really make a difference in eating locally and seasonally. I think we can make a huge difference in um, in our environmental health and then in climate change by making really solid eating choices through shopping at the farmer's market. Like tomorrow is the farmer's market here in Ashland. I'll be going on my bike with my backpack to go do my shopping for the week. And, um, and it's cheaper. Like our farmer's market, it's less expensive to buy from our local farmers yeah. than it is at a lot of our grocery stores. And the, and the, or, um, the, uh, Oregon uh, SNAP program, you can, yeah. you can use your SNAP you can use benefits, but a lot of places snap. you can't do that. Yeah, un- unfortunately, a lot of places yeah. it is cheaper to go buy the fast food burger than to buy fresh produce, which is yeah, totally horrible. So that's policy, and policy is a huge part of it. So we need better policy in this country that makes good local chemical-free food available to everyone. And that's a policy issue. Um, We also, you know, like 
we can make every single positive environmental change in our lives and be like the most perfect human being. And there's still, we're just going to be a drop in the ocean compared to the polluters that are doing the big polluting oil and gas, um, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a really amazing podcast that was started by, um, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. And I cannot believe that the name of it is escaping my brain, but I'll think of it. And it's this solutions-based podcast. And it's sometimes it's a little hard to listen to because they get really, really into what exactly is going on. But they really encourage you to, there's a whole entire podcast about like, if you have money on the stock market, how to divest it from fossil fuels. And um, if you're banking with a large bank, like how to um, make sure that you're banking correctly so you're not supporting the fossil fuel industry. So it's really accessible, really interesting. They have a whole uh, episode on um, sustainable regenerative agriculture and beef. Um, they have a whole episode on kelp farming that's really fascinating. So it's really, really, and every single episode is really solutions-based. And I think that there's a lot that we can in the outdoor industry you know, we're people who care about the outdoors and who are affected by climate change. And so, um, and there's another thing that I would definitely point everyone towards. And this is a fun one for people who are super passionate and super passionate about the outdoors and have some sort of cool niche thing that we do. Um, is there is an Instagram account called All We Can Save. And there's this All We Can Save Venn diagram that you can do. And I'm I'm going to space exactly what it, what the three circles are, but it's something along the lines of what are you good at, what do you like to do, and what do you want to do? And then you kind of play around with this Venn diagram, and you come up with like really individual cool climate change solutions for what you specifically can do, and where does everything kind of come to middle in the middle, and what are the one or two things that you can do that actually are fun and cool mm-hmm. and you like doing. And it's something that only you can do that nobody else can really do. So I think it's, I think there's an Instagram account called all we can save Venn diagram. Awesome. <laughs> and I just, I would love to see the outdoor industry and folks that live and work in the outdoor industry to, to do their, their Venn diagram and see what they could come up with. Cause there's so many things that you can do, whether it's, you know, you love myself film and media or, you just love fashion and you can you know, mm-hmm. advocate for sustainable practices within these, totally. these, these companies that are not using, you know, cheap oh, cotton so and things like yeah. that. So cotton is one of the dirtiest crops in America mm-hmm. and it is one of the most heavily subsidized crops in yep. America. So that is a huge impact that the outdoor company could have. Any outdoor company that uses cotton in their products mm-hmm. could do a much better job at advocating for chemical-free, regeneratively grown cotton because those honeybees that go in to pollinate those crops oftentimes don't come out alive. Yeah, and it's funny because you have, and that that trend is starting to happen. You have Patagonia that has done it, Mm -hmm. and now other companies are like, oh, well, we got to, it's capitalism working in favor for the, for the environment, it's like, oh, yeah. people, this is trendy. So you know, other companies are starting to follow suit, and I'm sure other companies will, you know, like organic food. Like, is it really organic? You know, there's different things people do. Yeah. Um, but it, it it could be a net positive. Yeah. If one or two companies begin to do this or have done it, we see other companies follow suit, and then you know, all of a sudden the fashion industry is like, oh wait, you know these environmentally conscious outdoor companies are doing this. We need to follow suit. And you have the bigger fashion companies and it just goes down, goes down the filter there. Um, there's so many things we could do. We could talk forever more, but um, 
if people want to see what you're doing or support what you're doing, support your work, where would they go? Uh, our website is bgirl.org, www.bgirl.org. And our website for our kids stuff is kidsandbees.org. Um, I'm also pretty active on social media, and that's at Sarah B. Girl, S-A-R-A-H-B-E-E-G-I-R-L. Awesome. <laughs> and I ask every guest this at the end of the show. Ultimately, how has the outdoors changed you? That's a big question. but I don't know if it changed me more than it formed me. I've been going in the outdoors since I was a baby. And I don't remember a time ever not being outside. And I feel like almost all of the photos in the album, for the most part, when I was a kid, were me outside, like hunting or fishing or trapping or hiking or camping or (laughs) doing something. So I think I am who I am today and every day because the outdoors formed me to be who I am. And I don't know if they... I think different experiences that I have in the outdoors over time, because I'm outside all the time, probably do change me. Um, But we all are in flux and are changing all the time. So I would, again, just kind of throw it to say that it's more like a formation instead of a change. Awesome. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And love to have you on again sometime talking more more your work and, and what you're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Um, I appreciate you all. You all are amazing. You all are awesome. Um, Make sure you follow Sarah at bgirl.org. She's doing amazing things, not only in Southern Oregon, but around the West, around the country, and around the world. The the impact of what she's doing has impacts around the world. Um, That was a really, really good conversation. And I, I, listening to it again, I'm like, oh, wow, I forgot what a good conversation that was. And, Shame I got out so late, but thank you all for your patience. And uh, yeah, I, I, I nothing else to say this episode except for if you want more information on me or the podcast, go to hikerpodcast.com. Uh, if you want to just find out more about me, uh, there's a little tab there, you click on that, all my information is there. And uh, we'll be getting more stuff on, on, on the podcast here, um, podcast website here soon. Wanting to do blogs and other things, um, on on that platform so again thank you all for your patience thank you for the sponsors Kanaka Outdoors and Gregory Mountain Products for allowing this episode to happen and with that thank you for listening to this week's episode finally of the Hiker Podcast